Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Foku. Today we are talking about the creative process and how to make it as efficient as possible. I have gathered Patrick Rosanda, Associate Art Director at Remedy Entertainment, James Myatt, Design Director at Sumo Digital, and Dom Club, Creative Director at Deadwood Games. Pretty much got someone from each discipline, decades of experience, probably in the 60s at this point. And yeah, very excited to have this conversation. So before we start, quick intros from everyone. So James, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Harry. Uh, I've been in the industry about 20-some-odd years now, uh, focused entirely on game design, user experience, uh, and making great experiences from like the player side of things. Uh, worked on a lot of stuff in the, the bigger side of things, on the, the AAA uh, side, uh, Need for Speeds, Ghost Recons, uh, a lot of big titles like that. Uh, and I'm currently working on some interesting stuff at Sumo, but, you know, can't talk about that. <laughs> All the cool secret stuff. Lovely. And uh, next, Dom. Hello. Um, yeah, my name's Dom Club. Um, I've been in the industry what twenty years, almost exactly. And yeah, basically ten years in AAA console, ten years in mobile, and now I've actually left to set up my own um, solo development studio. And that's it. That's me. Nice. Very rare to have the 10 years AAA, 10 years mobile, and now you've set up solo. Timed it, yeah. Timed yeah. it, exactly. <laughs> Amazing time. Nice. And yeah, finally, Patrick. Yeah, I'm, my name is Patrick. I've been in the industry for almost 13 years now. Uh, I worked on indie games up to AA and then AAA in that order, like worked myself up. Uh, latest release games I worked on was the Warhammer Vermintide series, first and the second, and then latest one that was released was Dark Tide. Uh, I also do some work for TV series. The one that I, yeah, the, the released one is Love the Robots as well. So I do extracurricular stuff like that as well. Love that show. Watched over my dad and he loved that as well. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, to be fair, there's loads of episodes. So maybe it was one of the weird ones or one of the cool ones. It is, it is one of the weird ones. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I'll ask you about that later. Hi everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, and Nordic's Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. We'll just get straight into it. So Patrick, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah, so my question is, uh, what are you looking for or what's most important to you in cross-disciplinary collaboration? And my thinking behind this question is, it's basically trailed me or haunted me, uh, depending on, on your view. Um, ever since university, I went to a game development school or did game projects during our uh, education. And there was sometimes a resistance, sometimes friction between design, art, and engineering, right? And um, sometimes that friction is good, sometimes it's bad. Um, and I mean, I've, it's followed me throughout my career in various states, right? Sometimes the teams are 
really flowing and, and syncing together. And sometimes there's more friction that needs to be resolved in order to work efficiently. So yeah, that's why I'm, I'm keen to hear your opinion on. Alrighty, Jane, uh, do you want yeah. to take this first, if that's all right? Yeah, of course. Um, so cross-disciplinary cross collaboration, in my mind, is is good as long as you set up the team to actually be able to be empowered to do it. Uh, I find, at least in my experience, there's been a lot of talk about that on other teams I've been on, and some teams have done it really well because they'll set up like a great strike team. It's like, okay, here's your guys' uh, thing that we want you to do, and just leave them to do it and give them the tools they need and let them figure out the best way to do it rather than what has happened in some of my more traditional uh, studios, which was someone at the top is telling that team what to do. At which point, is it really collaboration? Uh, <laughs> not so much. Uh, so I think like if you have a team that's ready to embrace like a strike team methodology or a, a feature team methodology where you can say, your guys, you guys are not only uh, in charge of but responsible for this, and as long as they know where they're going, you can stay more hands off and you get a lot more out of it. Uh, if, if if things start to go wrong, of course, you can need to come in there and steer it. But uh, there's there's always going to be like that pressure from above to like, now you have to micromanage everything. No, don't. Uh, I think we all got into the industry because we all have passions and thoughts and ideas. And it's very easy once you get into management to feel like you got to have a real tight control on stuff. Uh, but I find the the best versions of this is always let these people think about it from where their expertise comes from and talk about and uh, work out what the best ways are to do it because they're going to know better than you are and let them run with it and then let them surprise you, come back to you and say, hey, this is what we're doing. You go, oh, wow. Tell me, tell me more. Like I would have never thought of that. So for me, it's always like, is the team set up to succeed? Not is the team being told how to do their jobs constantly? That's what I look for. Uh, and when I see teams that aren't structured like that, uh, I'd rather talk about, well, why can't we let these people who are very talented, very smart, theoretically very responsible, we should be able to just trust them with this stuff. What's stopping that from happening? Uh, and then if you can solve that stuff, not only is everyone just generally happier to be working on what they're working on, but you're going to get chances are way better results out of it anyway. Uh, you, you, you get two birds with one stone. So yeah, for me, team structure that actually lets people use their passion and skills rather than just punch the clock. Should I go? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great answer. Sorry, Don. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of echo that. Um, letting people kind of have that kind of freedom to do what they're they're best at. Um, some people say like, you could argue, it's almost like a stay in your lane approach, and that's probably the the sort of flip side of it. The danger is by, you know, if people have like an opinion um, and the the comeback is actually you're, you're just an artist, you know, you stay in your lane, we'll give you freedom to do the art and we won't tread on your toes and you don't tread on ours. And in a way that can be really good, but I think in, in some in 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 some projects where you do want that kind of kind of collaboration you want to kind of be challenged i think it's quite good to to have that kind of discussion especially in the kind of pre pre pre-production phase it's really good to have that and then of course the end bit of all game development when it's heads down and it's kind of like oh god we're crunching or you know maybe yeah let's stay in our lane and just get the game out the door and getting the game out the door is is actually 
very difficult. It, it's, it's only happened a few times in my career. And um, yeah, and my point for the question is, I think um, successful yeah, cross-discipline is just, for me, it's really important to make decisions and stand by them. Like decision-making is a big, big thing for me. Uh, like tech, uh, design, like, yeah, like make the big decisions so that uh, as an artist, I don't have to redo all my work like later. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers it. I think it's important there, like the distinction of different seasons of the game you're in. Like if you're in pre-production, yeah. it makes a lot more sense to have a challenge. And then I like the point you made in the last few months of development. That is kind of where you maybe turn down yeah. the cross collaboration yeah. and the challenging each other, right? Yeah, because like you know, sort of design and tech, they they have great kind of they should no one should be afraid. Like I have a mainly art background, uh, you may have guessed, and I always love it when um you know people from like programmers like aren't afraid and say actually look at this this is you know that let's do this or or maybe you know on a more technical art level we could maybe push and do this. And pre-production is great for that. Um, and, you know, that's where all the features creep in. But, yeah, when, you know, when the whatever hits the fan, you know, the, when we're grinding the game out and it's, um, we just have to get, yeah, we, we can't really have those kind of creative disagreements and kind of opinions. Things just need to be set. We're doing this. We're not going to add anything. We're not going to deviate, please, for the love of everything that's, pure and good and just get the game out the door <sighs> yeah so i'm actually curious because there's there's kind of a a, a two-parter to the decision making part that you mentioned which is like when is the the right time to say this is the decision and we're not changing it versus oh that's a good point and maybe we should change it is 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 there something in your mind where you say this is how we we confirm like this is never changing or is 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 there is there a time where anything could possibly change uh, in a perfect world yeah that that's the that's the pre pre-production and the, probably the beginning of production there's always this kind of overlap where you know I've, i worked on fable that was the first game i worked on and um when i joined the studio we had what we called organic development where we just came in every day and just made it up. We made it up. And it was creatively, oh, it was amazing. Probably the best creative time of my life because I was just out of uni. I was young and I could do what we could do whatever we wanted. You know, I was doing kind of, you know, VFX, animation, rigging, like environment, UI. But then, you know, after years of, um, you know, making the, the world's greatest tech demo, I think the publisher were quite right to say, look, can you make the game now and that that kind of that organic development was was brilliant but when reality hit it was brutal crunch um and that's always scarred me probably that one year of crunch that we had one calendar year um and I, I just need decisions. I know as an art director, I'm like, let's, let's work really creative at the beginning. Let's have pre-production and have this few months of production where we're finding our feet and getting the pipelines in. Let's build those pipelines. And then when we hit it and we have a, a release date in like two years or, you know, let's, let's not 
let's try try not to have any feature creep but of course every single project i've ever worked on had then proceeded to have massive feature creep so i mean you know reality bites isn't it i mean <laughs> we can say all this stuff like oh we should definitely do this definitely do that next time we'll definitely not do that and then next time comes and here we are again <laughs> Like, what if the feature creep just is such a good feature and they just happen to come up at that point mm. where it's kind of mm. awkward to put in? Like, in my head, that could save the game despite the pain. But obviously, it's like with everything, it depends how much. <laughs> and it's hard to measure these things, right? That's it. That's the hardest decision to make, isn't it? It's like, okay, our Metacritic could jump. It could be like 90, you know, like it's, it's not 85 anymore. It's 92 like shit let's just crunch for a year i mean fable it worked out really well um but um but yeah i don't that's a really hard one i know crunch is a very controversial subject um some people work extremely hard and come out with a beautiful thing at the end but you know and people say you know it was brutal crunch and there's always oh it was bad management but i mean it's so difficult all these spinning plates like all this creativity you've got to do this like almost impossible task to make this creative product mixed with loads of different disciplines, technical, artistic, you know, the systematic programmer mind, the, the borderline insanity and chaos of the artistic mind. And, it, and it's kind of clashing. And, and at the end, we just cross our fingers and get the game out. And it's worked really well. And then sometimes it's it's been horrible. It hasn't worked at all. And I've got war stories, a lot of them. So, so it's funny, Harry. You mentioned it's hard to measure when you should make that choice of like creeping in a new feature or changing your scope. Um, but in fact, I would argue that you should be measuring, especially once you're in production, you should be using some sort of metric to measure your progress. Uh, and so... A lot of what I've done in previous projects is hopefully you have regular play tests with the team. And it's, I don't know about you guys, but it always seems to be a struggle to get the team to actually play the game because <laughs> we're all so busy making the game that oh, I don't want to play it. I'm too busy. Uh, but you need to play the game to know if you're making the right stuff or not. But through those play tests, hopefully you're doing regular questionnaire type surveys where it's like at yeah, one to 10, how's this feature? How's that feature? How's this area? How's that area? And over time, you should be able to use a metric to say, oh, look, we went from a two to a four in the, the combat uh, part of the gameplay. We're, in, we're, we're doing the right stuff. Or, oh, we've gone for many playtests now and nothing is improving in the driving gameplay. And that's when you can say, okay, well, maybe we should be entertaining some of these ideas because we're, we're just struggling. Our gameplay in this area is not what we need it to be. Uh, or we can say, well, no, look, we're at a seven or an eight and we've been consistently climbing. We're doing the right stuff here. It's paying off don't mess with that right so i would say that you should have a way to measure that stuff so that you're not i think the the, the trouble here is otherwise it's whoever has the loudest voice will will decide what what is and isn't going in whereas rather you can use the whole team's uh points of view through an amalgamated score of here's what our gun gameplay is like and here's what our sword gameplay is like and whatever uh to say yeah we're, we're trending in the right direction we have six months left if we continue to trend like this we will be fine in these areas let's take this time and put it let, let's not add to this let's add to something else that we're, we'll really get a bang for buck out of so yeah i i would being a game designer i would make a spreadsheet about it <laughs> and then try and make sure we actually can point to some data even if it's small it's just your team internally 
uh, and then hopefully every so often turn it over to external playtest friends and family, uh, closed closed alpha tests, whatever it may be, to confirm that your internal scores kind of sync up with fresh eyes. Uh, someone who's never played before, yeah, they think it's about a seven or they think it's about an eight. Uh, and then as long as all that stuff lines up, put it in the DLC bucket, put it in the sequel bucket. Like it, it, there's nothing wrong with having all these ideas, but carve out a really good place for those ideas to live. So people feel like they're not just going to be withered and forgotten about, and it's not worth thinking. No, it is worth thinking about. Chances are someone's going to have to start ramping up, especially in this day and age of live service. Someone's going to have to start ramping up new stuff to go out the door constantly. So there's, there's no, no wrong answers when it comes to that more scope. It's just when, yeah. Just mute it, Patrick. I'm muted. Still muted. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think like knowing when to make that decision comes from really knowing your project and really being hands-on and knowing the tech, knowing how the levels are built, for example. Uh, during the development of Vermintide 2, <clears throat> we had a kind of a tone, not an issue with the tone, but we weren't hitting as dark fantasy as we were hoping to do. And uh, it was really late in production where we made the decision, decision to like um, change basically the time of year that included basically redoing all the plants, uh, redoing a lot of the light environments, like shading of lighting. Luckily enough, we didn't bake our lighting, which is great. Otherwise, it would have been impossible. Um, and for example, we added like a, a lot of dead bodies, like a lot of debris, etc. And we were able to do that in an efficient way because like the decision was made from a place of kind of like, what do we have? What assets do we have? What resources do we have? And what can we do in a very reasonable time frame? right? It was not, oh, we need to make uh, two more man months worth of assets in order to make the tone change for the game, for example. But we were actually just indexing our assets in the project and knowing that we had an issue with the tone, seeing like, can we actually do something about it? And in this case, like the cost of uh, some, not that much crunch, but some extra overtime and extra time investment kind of saved the game because it became more coherent. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been a great experience without it, right? Who knows? Uh, the combat is the main element of that game, right? But from our perspective, uh, yeah, that kind of helped us like hone in on the specific vision we were after. But uh, yeah, so that was a, it was an adventure, but it was good times. You make a very good point. I feel like there you clearly planned the cost of the tone change and then decided it was worth it rather than the other way around. Like, ah, we're panicking, let's just do it. Because then from my understanding, everyone was bought into that, right? And sounds like a much better way to do things. Yeah, they were bought in, but also the, me and the lead artist kind of making the decision were really aware of the cost and, and not just saying this is the new direction. We were more done our due diligence and made sure that we knew uh, what the actual implications to the team would be. So we didn't uh, honestly screw them over. Can I ask, sorry, um, was it an internal decision to change the tone of the game or did it come from, because Vermintide is Warhammer, isn't it? So it was Games Workshop quite heavily involved in in, in that. No, they were really hands-off. Um, okay. Great partner uh, and they were really hands-off when it comes to the, um, kind of the environment tone. 
I would say that they are more focused on their characters and and like kind of the look of their kind of the, the more specific things in their IT and their yeah, environment. Like the law. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so law and look you have to, of course, adhere to that. But oh, excellent. But for me, it was more making sure that we respected kind of the fantasy that they pre present uh, in their in their books and their games, and making sure we went dark enough for the fans to appreciate and feel like this is the game that represents the board game they've been playing or tabletop game <laughs> board game. <laughs> yeah, the tabletop game that I've been playing for for years. Nice. So I think again, I think bringing that back to cross disciplinary collaboration, like. You, number one, it was an internal decision, which I think helps a lot because then it's coming from point of understanding. If that came from up top, that might have some animosity, right? But like the, I think it's very important to double click on that thing you said, like coming with the cost prepared. Like you didn't just say, hey, we need to do this. And then everyone was left to fill in the blanks. Like you came with cost prepared and in like a case, basically. And I think if you are going to bring something up that's going to infect the entire studio, sounds like you really want to come with your homework done, not the other way around because uh, then you're going to get so much more buy-in and I guess respect, right? Awesome. So yeah, let's move on to the next question, which is from James. James, what is your question and the context behind it? Yeah. Uh, so the question as written, how can we use AI tools to make better games ethically? I think probably the ethically is probably the in parentheses, it's, but how can we use these AI tools to make games better and make better games? Uh, the context behind this is, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I'm, I'm doing a bit of pitch work, I'm doing a bit of ideation, uh, and I've been exposed to uh, using AI tools to do this uh, myself, uh, do a lot more supporting art to, rather than like uh, bring in a whole big team so we can fire through a lot of ideas quicker. Uh, and it's really opened my eyes to, yeah, you, you can do a lot of things that maybe you couldn't have done before if you're very specialized like myself. I'm a very game design focused kind of guy. Uh, so I'm very curious, like, uh, what kind of experiences have you guys had? Is there stuff you're looking forward to? Do you think there's there's room here? And then the ethically part, I think we know the answer to that, but I'm, I'm definitely curious to, to hear your, your ideas on that as well. All righty. Patrick, thoughts on this? I think, uh, I mean, I'm a concept artist. I've been a concept artist for the last majority of my career. So I kind of land really hard in the, the ethical camp of, like, it should be um i think you need to know where the data sets come from and make sure that you have all the like everything checks out uh, i think that's from the ethics part i think that's the important like statement i want to make before i even say anything else regarding it but when it comes to the technology i think it's amazing to be honest i mean it's mind-blowing um i haven't used it that much i've experimented dabbled uh, to really know what's what's actually coming because it's going to impact us all massively the coming years right this is just the beginning <laughs> i mean imagine in 10 years uh, it's unimaginable really uh, so i think it's important to know what's coming and be a, kind of a part of it i also think it's as you said important to make sure that it comes from a, from a good place instead of just scouring the <laughs> net from my images among others and training the algorithms on, on that but i mean it's a great tool to use for for example mood boards references etc you can utilize it in a in a nice way um or i've seen people do it at least uh so i mean yeah i mean i think the possibilities are endless it's almost like you go through writing like 
concept art or character design, hard surface design, vehicle design, like you just go through every single area coding and just say like the impact will be huge. The question is what kind of impact? And I think for me at least it's a bit earlier to, to say. Um, uh, but I do try to think of it quite a lot, uh, which, yeah. And we, we have kind of guidelines internally at Remedy for what we're allowed to use, et cetera, as well, to be clear on that. So I think, and when I worked in freelance before, there's always like the really strict limitations of you need to own the work that you give to a client, right? So I think for it to be used in real production work, I'm guessing that it's up to each company, right? To make sure that the legal hurdles are kind of handled. And I think most companies are not willing to take that risk yet, but it's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be exciting to see the coming years, like how people have actually handled this first couple of years in the AI revolution. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's difficult because right now, it, what we say today might be different in a week or a month because I know I, you just go onto LinkedIn and people are posting like, oh, look at my new AI thing. I, 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 I always test them out because I'm always curious. And there was one the other day where you drew, I was drawing and then the panel on the right, it was you know that making my drawing into like uh well whatever i said i wanted it to be part of so it was live drawing i would put like a a, a prompt at the big like the bottom i think i said like hamburger monster and i started drawing like a hamburger with demonic eyes and i and also put 3d rendered and i was scrawling away with like a big fat pen because their their they're drawing tools are awful and then it was just making this trying to figure out what i what burger what i was doing and and then i and, and then i could swap swap um the thing so what it was rendering then became what i was drawing i painted into it um but it was so i mean in the future it'll be it'll be amazing but it was un, it was kind of unusable and and again ethically what is it trained on like it like what is what other work is this my work and you know, i'm painting over it it's generating something has it just stolen it all i'm not completely sure on how it generates the images i'm you know technical my kind of ai brain isn't quite there but um as a solo developer though i like chat gpt i've been using it to every time i get a, like a unity throws up like everything i code um just in the red you know the the compiler errors what am i doing wrong you know it'll say i don't know the context of your code but you've probably done this boom like eight out of ten times it's just corrected my code then it goes on to teach me would you like to know more you may want to do this this is what you did wrong this and, it, and it's almost like a teacher so in, in in coding respects it's it's been brilliant you know it does boilerplate code code you'd never want to you don't want to re redo the wheel every time and it saves so much of the tedium in, in coding and, and debugging and bug fixing it's incredible um for concept art though uh, like yeah i um I'm, I'm not there yet i mean i i, I have tried ge generating some in dali but i i don't want doing wrong because it just turns out turns out rubbish and i just you know I, i'm 
yeah, I've done a lot of concept art. I've been, um, I'm old. Uh, I'm a middle-aged guy. I can just do it faster in Photoshop. But but maybe my kids will will use it more than me, probably to generate memes and nothing else. But um, but for me, though, the art side definitely. If you're going to use something straight out of AI in production, ooh, no, no, no. I mean, if you're doing exploratory work like concept art, I mean, I did. Um, I wanted to do like a sci-fi a toaster like a sci-fi toaster. So I didn't say, do me a sci-fi toaster. I said, can I have a toaster that's isometric, white background, flat lighting, studio lighting, 3D rendered look. Uh, and it just threw me up a toaster. And then I put it into Photoshop and made, you know, a boring toaster. I, I then painted over the top of it. It gave me a, a nice perspective. You know, it gave me a base, my art. I don't think, and it's a for personal portfolio anyway. But I, I, but I don't know even if that's ethics. Should I, should I have done that? Am I now in trouble? Um, you know, oh, I, and the third thing, because I'm doing my own game, I'm really bad at writing. So the characters in my game, I write the script and then I say, hey, ChatGPT, could you improve the grammar? Or, um, oh, ChatGPT, I, I want like a robot, like a like a tutorial robot, but I want him slightly sarcastic. Think of like a like a Rouge robot or you no know, Marvin the Paranoid Android and and give me some funny tutorial text and it comes out with just blinders i'm not sure that's <laughs> i'm not sure i can use it though <laughs> oh, and that's where that ethical part comes in right is like who wrote it so yeah did yeah. douglas adams just write my tutorial i'm gonna get the tu- I'm, you know what after this i'm gonna erase the tutorial but i'm gonna start again it's probably gonna get done but, but i think the, the the things you're touching on here are the things that i'm really excited the it's the what we can use these tools to do. How is a really hard question, both ethically and technically. But the what of these tools is like, yeah, I can do a whole bunch of stuff and explore a whole bunch of ideas really quickly uh, in a way that like in five or 10 years, I will be spending more time hopefully doing the fun, iterative, creative parts because the AI is going to go through and give me a white block level that is X by Y and I, I don't have to do the first pass, right? It can figure that out for me. And then I can go in and start using my creativity and knowing what I need out of that rather than spending the first four or five or six days just white blocking everything out. It can probably generate that for me quickly uh, in the way that like right now, if I'm doing a pitch for a concept, I was like, give me a, a character who is an old wizard and he's running a race and he's doing this and that. Great. Uh, and then I could take that and start instead of having to spend the first week with a concept artist just to get to that point, the concept artist can then inform me and say, hey, Here's the kind of things we should do. I see what you're trying to say uh, because I'm not artistic and I probably couldn't draw that to start with. It gets us so much further ahead. I think that's going to be really exciting to see creative people be able to be way more creative and way less just doing the heavy lifting to get to the creative parts. So, yeah, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, I think you have a good point like of the because like communicating and pitching an idea is basically just voice and text and, and uh, images, I was going to say visual communication was what I was looking for. Like, that's why concept art is such a powerful tool in production. Like you describe a landscape or you show an image of a landscape. It's two different things. And one image can feed an entire team, right? So I understand like the value of it. And I mean, if you think about it, disregarding the ethical part, isn't it wonderful that you can show the character design you're looking for and actually change parameters in it? 
yourself instead of going on Pinterest and getting a random character like image. I think I can see like that's you can describe your idea more accurately, you can pitch more accurately. So I think from that sense, like in that sense, the technology can really help us make better and cooler games. But as you said, how? That's <laughs> and I mean, I would be interested in seeing like uh, libraries, proprietary libraries, where you can like purchase or make sure that the stuff the the model is trained on is like properly licensed and. It could be an in-house thing as well. Like, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff would be interesting in order to to make the tool usable. To be honest, because uh, right now I'm seeing more abuse than proper use of AI tools. To be honest, uh, but that's just my my two cents. Yeah, one thing I wanted to say because um, I've had this conversation a few times, like on video calls, and it's pretty much echoing what we say here. Like, so much potential, but the ethical side means we're not really using it much practically. But I think there's a really important thing we can mention. Like, if you can train the data, sorry, train with data that is yours, and I've seen this more and more, like the new ChatGBTs are coming up where you can just basically feed it your entire podcast history, and then it basically talks like you. For me, that's an ethical, like, AI, right? Like I'm happy to use stuff because it's literally trained on my data. And I want to say that is possible with images. I don't know if there's like an easy off-the-shelf solution yet, but eventually you could treat it, give it your own assets and then augment those assets. That, in my opinion, is just the next evolution, right? Um, we have better VFX artists now than 10 years ago, but there's more VFX artists now. So I like that analogy in that we're just having better tools, hopefully, speeding up the process to kind of what James said, like in just go to the good part, I guess, the more creative part. And there is an example where, for example, using AI to make 2D images into 3D, that's one where in my head is ethical, but just reflecting out loud now, I don't know if the 3D part is being trained on non-licensed stuff. It's just such a gray area, but hopefully that gets sussed out eventually. You know, it's for me, like the, just the question I just wanna come back to quickly is like, what are, so how can we use the AI tools to make games? Ethically, I think it's really important what James said, like just hopefully getting rid of some of the grunt work, but they hopefully like all the concepts are like coming up with new ideas. You can use stuff for reference, but like the actual stuff that's going to be in the game, that should all be done. Um, like not by hand, but uh, you know what I mean? Like using your own tools or what have you, James. Yeah, one, one last nerdy bit on this before we move on. Uh, I think one of the things that excites me the most that could be, that is going to be done very soon with AI is sitting in and doing all the digital note keeping. Uh, it's listening into your meetings and it's saying, oh, he, here's the, all the tasks you want to create. Great. Just go make those for me. Plug them into Jira. Assign them to the people that uh, mentioned them. Like a lot of that busy work that, yeah, that that is something that production might feel like, well, that's taking my job. Well, no, it's just it's going to stop you from doing all that stuff so you can actually do the thing that a producer should be able to do really well. Like, no one no one is going to miss the, oh, well, I didn't sit around for six hours recapping all the notes from today and entering into JIRA. Uh, and I think it'll allow the the meetings that we do have and talk about what is happening to be much more, all right, we're just, we're having those discussions, we're agreeing on things, and then the AI is going to pick up all those pieces and action it for us. That, that sounds awesome, but super nerdy. <laughs> yeah, things are already in place now. Like, I, I think I'm using a form of that. It's a bit of a manual process. It'd be nice if, like, Microsoft figures out a way where it's a bit more seamless, but yeah, I'm sure like James said, it's coming. But yeah, that's amazing. If you can just come out of the meeting, like, all right, here's my to-do list. All righty, moving on to the next question, which is from Dom. Dom, what is your question and the context behind it? Short context. Unmute. 
Yes. Um, when design codes are in production, and I apologise if I've missed someone off, can't agree on a creative direction, whose opinion means more? And is there an unspoken discipline hierarchy? So, yeah, like context, I was quite simple. Like, do you just have to listen to the programmers? Like, did, uh, <laughs> are they number one? Design number two? And and why is art always on the bottom? Um, anyway, yeah, that's, uh, let's have this discussion. What do you think, uh, James? I'm thinking from a design background, like... Yeah, it's always going to be contextual. I don't think there's one right answer to this. It, like... I, I was working on a project uh, in the the recent past that was very much like physics over the network oriented. Obviously, it doesn't matter what the artists and the designers think. The code has to tell us what's possible first, right? And then we should understand the constraints uh, that we're working with to make sure that we can do the best with what we, we have or what we don't have. But in other cases, like art may have the, the precedence there. Uh, design may have the precedence. Uh, I'll, I'll always come back though when I talk about it. it the, the thing that everyone on the team should be able to agree on is, well, what's going to make the best user experience? What's going to make the best thing for the player at the end of the day? Uh, and then the other side of it is, well, wh what's going to cost? Uh, what, what's cost effective? Uh, and hopefully those two things are the same, uh, but not always. Uh, but I think the the best way to to handle any of these discussions, in my experience, has always been make sure you guys have a clear goal from the outset uh, and you're always trying to achieve the goal. That way, it doesn't really matter who's coming up with it. If code has a suggestion, if art has a suggestion, or if design has a really passionate idea about something, you can always come back to, well, how does that help us solve the goal? How does that help us reach our goal? And if it does or doesn't, most people have already kind of self-filtered what they're saying so that it's already collaborating and working towards that goal. And if it isn't, it doesn't. you don't have to say, yeah, you know, I don't like what you're saying as a person, <laughs> but rather, how does that help us with our goal? It, it becomes less confrontational and more, please help me understand what you're saying in the context of we're working towards X goal and off you guys go. Um, but ultimately, I think the the big the, the big conflict in my experience has always been design and art. Because <laughs> design wants uh, gameplay-oriented stuff that may come at the cost of the visual fidelity and then, of course, art wants the the exact thing. Well, let's make it look greatest, but maybe it's hard from a user experience point of view to to grok, and that that conflict is always there. So yeah, I will always come back and say, well, is this going to make the best user experience? Uh, and that should be a, a collaboration of all of those things, functionally, technically, creatively, visually. Yeah. So that that's my two cents. Yeah, I mean, I I just want to second what you said. I think having the play experience as the a goal no matter what you're working on is usually the, what I find solves that problem uh, in most cases and in a lot of cases. And also coming back to what you said about art and design, I feel like I've had so many experiences where, where this discussion has happened, like uh, height of a cover versus how it should look or scale of a door or stuff like that and i mean or it is coloring coloring the ledges so the player knows where to grab the ledge and yeah yes yeah exactly. yellow. yeah yellow always yellow it's no white sometimes white yeah. white or yellow yeah put, put bird poo on the ledge yeah well, is it tomb raider who has the white yeah i think so it's a good game though but yeah and um i do feel, feel like for me i always find it helps to come from a point of empathy trying to empathize what the, the, what the, for example, design wants to accomplish and really, 
really understanding like what lies behind the argument or like the what what's being suggested instead of just going the different route of just challenging the initiative so trying to really sit down and discuss and understand why because there's usually a good compromise in most com in most cases there's usually a really good compromise and if there isn't how much does it really matter for for your team i think that's a good thing to keep in mind um Usually, I mean, sometimes it, it matters the world, right? It's like a game-defining thing. But I mean, day-to-day -day stuff, it's always good to give, to be honest. Like instead of going for the conflict, to actually say it doesn't matter that much. We can like we can just fix it because most things are fixable from an art perspective. I have to say, uh, even though I should probably be beating on the art run, but I'm not. So like games that play well and look good. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because like it's very easy uh, from a human nature point of view for it to be an us versus them whenever there's a conflict, and it can be the big ones like us as the dev team versus them as the publisher, and the publisher is coming in with some feedback, and you're like, well, those guys are dumb. Well, probably not. <laughs> you're probably just not understanding the context of it. But it can even within a team there can be that kind of like tribalized like level design versus level art. It, no, there should never be a versus. It, it, these two people are the exact, like they're two sides of the coin. They should be working together. And it kind of comes back to actually your first question, Patrick, which is like that cross-collaboration. If, if you have groups of people already collaborating from the beginning, you're probably going to sidestep so many of those conflicts down the road. Whereas like I think the old school method is very much like there's a, a discipline silo for design. And there's a discipline silo for art and for code, and they just kind of hand work back and forth from one silo to the next. And that's where these conflicts really take root is because, well, art said they want like this. Well, art guys, what the fuck do they know? I'm, they're not designing this thing. And it's just no, 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 stop it. And I've seen in more recent years uh, a big push on the, the teams I've been on to, to break down those silos. Uh, and as that happens... I, I found less of that conflict that happens. Um, it's probably, uh, there, there's probably really interesting, like what has that done in combination with all this remote working that a lot of people are doing now? And now it's like, everyone's isolated. Is that getting better or worse? Is everyone just like in their own little island and it's me versus the whole team now? I don't think it is. Uh, I found it pretty collaborative, but yeah. Uh, I think um, what you're saying is really, really interesting about how, like those conflicts seem to just sprout up, but there's there's really no need because you're all trying to accomplish the same thing. Yeah, yeah, no, the conflict thing is um, so dangerous because once it once those personal feelings get involved, um, it's and then it affects morale. Like getting out of that hole is is really hard. I mean, not not for uh, for over a decade but you know in the old days yeah if, I've, I've i've seen people ro have physical fights rolling around on the floor um you know when it, it was bad it festered lack of communication james as you said um on code there's, there's a big gulf between them they're just no one's talking and then you know everyone's stressed we go down the pub and then everyone's just rolling around on the ground um yeah and uh, and 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 pat patrick you mentioned empathy probably the most important thing actually because like when i kind of cringe at uh, when i was younger and didn't quite understand 
where code or design were coming from or production and 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 their fears of how of of how they're seen and you know programmers they don't want to say no to people they don't, they don't want to be the people that just poo-poo everything like no sorry kind of that we can't have that producers don't want to be the kind of bad news the, no or, or, or the kind of the whip you know that hurry up do this we don't care about it's just about the bottom line the schedule um and, and arts you know our, our big fear i mean artists have a lot of fears <laughs> um but it is that kind of you know art takes i'm taking too long it, you know art takes time it, it, you know it's a lengthy process and um if everyone kind of understands everyone else's fears and you know and you know we we know everyone's a professional we're trying to get, get the same um we're, we're trying to get a great game a great product out the door and I, I, I think on the director level it's that's super important but as a as my last jobs as art director it's also communicating to the younger teams who aren't in those meetings so they're isolated and 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 that's where sometimes they get together and they, it's, it's a clique and they're quite um sort of wet behind years inexperienced and then they and they're passionate young people full of passion and they're just gonna kick off and it's about being that barrier and, and trying to kind of understand where they're coming from they just want to do the best art and you know and to um communicate to the young ones that we're not some cabal of like evil sort of leaders in a room just making bad decisions um and yeah it's um again it's tough and it's about yeah empathy and managing those kind of and communication right just trying to communicate and that's really hard in today's world because of remote work you know we can touch on remote work the problems with isolation and we can't you're not in the kitchen making a coffee and then someone comes in and you have a chat and you talk through something there's no spontaneous conversations or mentoring because of course a lot of the seniors now are at home remote work because we've got kids and you know and and a lot a lot of the young um the young developers want to be in the office they want to be in the office they want to learn um and they want to be there and i think like yeah the whole remote situation i love it i love i love remote work but it, I do fear that there's a lack of communication. So yeah, that's my my two cents. Yeah, it made me think when you're mentioning like the the empathy and the communication skills again. Like the the thing that I always get a laugh out of is like the large majority of people who are attracted to game dev, at least traditionally. This may be changing as the next generation rolls in. Uh, in part. Uh, don't have the greatest soft skills. <laughs> uh, and we, we got into playing games and didn't didn't either because we had not the best people skills or we didn't develop our people skills because we were too into games. Um, but it, all of the stuff that we get focused on learning and doing better tend to be hard skills. Like, do you know the, be the, the latest and greatest shader tech? Are you aware of this new networking thing? Like, but anyone can learn those things. Uh, there's there's going to be a YouTube video and a manual and a, a bit of code you can pick up and look at. But the soft skills are what make good teams great. And when you you fail to have that empathy and you you don't spend time actually like, right, this is how you deal with these things person to person. 
doesn't matter how great your tech is. <laughs> and so it's always just funny, like the, 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 the types of people that tend to get drawn into our industry, myself included, uh, probably didn't come with great soft skills and people skills to begin with, which, yeah, that, that doesn't help a lot of the times. <laughs> I do feel like that's something we can do about, right? Like you, this can be taught. I think a big part of the context thing we were talking about earlier is like that has to work both ways. Like if you're a leader, and there are clicks come happening, then you can give your context. Or um, I recently did a LinkedIn Live with uh, Endreams Elevation. They have a very interesting remote model where they basically do their sprints. Everyone from the studio is there. Then each feature has its own like um, area on Teams, and it's just a public channel that people can join. So there's some methods there. I won't go into the details, but where you can kind of recreate that osmosis that will happen, so everyone can actually get, understand each other's context because if you sat down and spoke to someone and tried to give them all their all your context, that might take four hours. It's not happening in practice, but I think that osmosis, if we can encourage that, which I think there's ways even remotely, that will help bring down those barriers. And then I think, yeah, silos is the worst thing ever because then when there's silos happening, conversations are happening to filling the gaps of like, oh, this is probably why they're doing it. Like, like, no, no, no. And we need to really get cut through all of that and be proactive. And then hopefully we won't have that situation. Like we won't need this question, right? Well, who um, do we, whose opinion means more? It's like, no, what will make the vision of the game succeed? That's what we're hoping for, right? Awesome. Um, nice. So we have a bit more time. So I will go on to an extra bonus question. So this is kind of touching on what we're saying here. So practically now, like, how would you balance stakeholder relationships to achieve an efficient creative process? So especially on the creative side, and I'm curious, because um, all three of you are kind of in early stages as well. So I'm wondering, like in the early stages, like, is there any tactics or methodologies in the past that just to assist that dynamic when you're working with prototyping is kind of like not something you can measure, so to speak. Uh, like, I mean, we have we touched on a few things you can measure, but yeah, I'll get back to the question. So like, how do you balance that stakeholder relationship above kind of outward to like consumers and also like internally uh, to achieve that efficient creative process? They don't want to take that. Uh, I'll jump in first. Um, so I think if you're focused on the the importance of stakeholders and their titles and their roles, it's very easy to ignore that each of these people are just that, they're people. Uh, and hopefully you can have just direct human re relationships with these people, not I am this director and you are that director and we are important people, but rather well, why are you working this job? What do you want out of this job? What do you want out of this project? What are you here for? What excites you? Uh, and the more you can have those more like, as you said, down at the pub type of like casual talks and chats and things where you can you can see each other not as two people in charge of areas, but rather yeah, two people with lots of cool ideas and passion that you like working with. That is where everything else can spring from. If if you neglect that, it can become very easy to to get into that sort of like, well, I am the boss of this, so you have to respect when I make this decision about it, rather than, oh, well, James said this thing. Oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder why he said that. I'm just going to go chat to him because, you know, I chat with James all the time. Um, so, yeah, making sure that you you have that sense of, like, we're just people. Yeah, we have lots of responsibilities, but that doesn't make us any different than if we were two juniors on the project. We all have interesting things to say about stuff we are just for better or worse burdened with a lot of responsibility. <laughs> 
is there like a time or like a good time to have these conversations because I've mentioned before like you know when you everyone's buckling down it's it, it's it's quite or there's a really like a really restrictive like like time box it's like yeah. it, it's quite difficult whereas I mean generally in video games we do get the chance to chat I mean I've I've worked in um I did a little stint at a, a television studio and although I I was I helped with the television shows I was also doing like a little a little video game thing on the side for one of the for one of the people that owned the it was, it was it was it was a weird situation I think we were doing games of TV stuff but television they have to do a product a week like a TV show that's going to be on air in one week and the studio cost is astronomical that nothing can go wrong so they have like the stakeholders they have such a linear the ultimate waterfall like that the way they sit at their desk there's the producer assistant producer researcher and then at the very end there's like the what well, the runner and and they will only communicate really to their superior one up or one down and it was incredible because one would say the producer would say I, I um, get me a coffee and then and then the associate producer would turn to the person to, to their left and say uh, get me a coffee they would turn to the next person and by the time it gets to the runner he's already getting his coat on and out the door um, to go get the coffee but but there's, there was this really kind of back and forth incredibly fast very efficient way of 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 creating their things where no one had a conversation it was you do you have one job to do these are the stakeholders you do this you do this and if we all do it at the same time it's perfect synergy and we can get the thing out in one week high pressure um thank god we're not that because you know in video games you know to get back stakeholders you know we've you know it's we have time we have time and i think if if that kind of relationship is fostered really well at the beginning and you know it, it theoretically it can be really plain sailing it can be a really easy easy production and i'm trying to think have i ever worked on an easy production in 20 years not yet but theoretically yeah good so, sure easy uh, i don't think anything in games comes easy <laughs> no no too many bugs. Uh, but to, to kind of go back to what you asked, is like, when's the best time to have those conversations? Like in an ideal world, everyone starts at the exact same time on a project. That's when you start having them. And then you keep having them. You just keep those doors and lines of communication open. Uh, but that's never the case. Like when have you had all of the stakeholders all join the team at the same time? Never. <laughs> no. Like, and that will do like a hierarchy. The first person that joins like you might have the best i'll be going to be a fat structure but know that the first people there's always an an, an an unspoken hierarchy the people that join the company i'm, I'm employee number seven that means I'm, I'm the seventh most important person i've seen that happen a lot yeah but i think as long as you can have them early uh and try and foster that culture of yeah, someone's going to be responsible, but that doesn't mean they're in charge. <laughs> like that, what they say goes no matter what, that you can have mm -hmm. a conversation and ask a question and bring a dissenting idea and not be like, oh, well, I'm going to get fired because I spoke up about it. That is important. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's it's not just stakeholders. It's the whole team. It can turn into like 
like you said, low morale and very toxic and extremely political. Like I think we've all probably had experience like that and they suck. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's about knowing what's expected as well from, from your, your stakeholders and then being able to efficiently communicate to them and also their communication down to the rest of the team is I've been in a lot of situations where there's been a, like a strong buffer buffer zone between management and the team, which I found to be problematic uh, in the past where you have management communicating one thing and then it kind of never reaches the team. And then when the management speaks to the team, you have this kind of wow moment when you realize everybody wants the same thing, but there's been like a, almost like a whisper game or like a weird, or yeah, yeah, like a whisper game. And I think that that's so important to like not ever like block communication, really just pass it on and make sure that but it's, it's actually everybody kind of knows what's going on. Even if it's like a bit unpleasant, um, I think it's, it's good for the team to know. Uh, sure, like some situations that stuff can affect team morale, but it's better that they know uh, what's going on, I, I believe, than, um, than that there's this disconnect within the project and, and the company. Yeah, the uh, about disconnect and about, yeah, if there's a buffer, then sort of rumors start. Like you never want to be in that position where everyone's down the pub on a Friday with their conspiracy theorists theories and their kind of, you know, and, and the kind of angst, anxiety and the kind of, uh, and, and the kind of bitterness and resentment that bubbles up because there's room, like rumors in the company. I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it, you know, it's, I've been down the pub a lot, you know, and I know how <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that the question was asking was like, is there like tactics or methodologies? Um, and one thing that um, I found really useful was when I learned about the Eisenhower matrix. I don't know if you guys have heard of this one before. Uh, and it's basically a, a four quadrant grid of uh, important and urgent things. Uh, and so one, two, three, four, is it important and urgent? Is it urgent but not important, important but not urgent? Is it neither of those things? And I bring this up because I think one of the things that's important is making sure that the right groups of people, be it stakeholders, be it leads, be it a feature team, is working on the right things at the right time. Uh, and I think the stakeholders can become, because we've all come up through being single contributors and being hands-on developers, it can be very easy for us to be focused on, well, I need to, I'm going to, I have a, an experience in this kind of system development, so I want to really focus on this. But is it really that important or urgent? Is this the right thing for you and your role or for you, your people to be working about? Or should you delegate that out to, okay, there's a lead or there is a principal that I can put in charge of this thing, give them a clear goal, and I can worry about what's actually like urgent and important. And hopefully I'm, I'm never worrying about urgent stuff because it's all just being solved. And I, I, can, I can clearly understand, right, these are the important things for me. And if it's not important, it doesn't mean it's not valuable to the team. It's just maybe someone else should do that and you know when you should hand the right things off as well. I feel like this all comes back to the vision. Like if you have that vision of what everyone is going towards, then we could always just vibe check the communication, everything, and there is no like question mark, so to speak. And um, one thing that came up, like when I hear about uh, stakeholder relationships and like essentially if there's the conversations happening and the negative rumors, like the way to cut through that is to basically prevent 
rumours been happening is just to actually say what's happening in a more public way, I think, and a bit more upfront. And I think there's a few tools you can use that, like Slack channels. Like if there's a decision that's going to be made, you can kind of, if you use Slack, you can just post it and let everyone either anonymously reply or can actually see what's going on rather than find out after the fact, like, oh, wait, that affects what I've been doing the whole time. Or do these decisions in public, whether it be in like a recorded kind of meeting, so to speak, and then that can be published. And you know, we have AI tools now and you can have people can watch the summary or something. Like, I think there's a lot of tools we can use to just get rid of the silos, especially in the remote world. Like we want to effectively give everyone as much context as possible. And then hopefully the empathy kicks in and then these stakeholder relationships, I think coming back to what James said, like you're dealing with people. As soon as you start streaming stakeholders of like, you are publisher, I am developer, and I'm just going to throw my developer information into the publisher. That's not the way to go, right? You want to be talking to the human being. The um the publisher stakeholder that's something quite quite interesting because because that's the relationship, that's the stakeholder, the publisher, probably the most terrifying one, mm. and the one that you can't really you got to really watch it internally. We can all disagree, agree, have these conversations, but you need to kind of give the publisher this air that everything's perfect you all know what we're doing and uncertainty or lack of decision making or you know should we do this should we do that uh, for pu publishers it's, it's very difficult to manage that stakeholder relationship it's like i just i mean historically personally it's just yeah just just sell that everything is completely rosy in the company nothing has gone wrong and whatever you whatever the publisher wants we will provide that's always what that's my kind of opinion but maybe it's wrong maybe publishers do want a bit of pushback but it's something that kind of terrifies me personally yeah i so i can speak to this having both been like in the internal ea and ubi side where it's all one big tent so the publisher is the developer but also having worked externally uh like the last game i shipped was gears tactics microsoft was an external publisher for that uh Honestly, the there's no one right answer, but I think the one thing you, you want to avoid is overselling any any one thing, um, because sooner or later the bill will come due, <laughs> um, and you, you need to strike that balance between making sure they always see you as competent, uh, but also you know like if there's an issue, you should discuss it and understand why and what and how this issue is being handled. Uh, and then be able to circle back to it in, in the next milestone and say, yep, solved. This is the thing we did about it. Because I think that's what builds the long-term trust, which is it, they can see problems because they know problems are going to happen. Like they're not stupid. They're not there for it, but they know that's going to like, but they can see that you have skills, you have processes, you have people that can take care of problems. So they can be like, all right, I, I'm, I'm okay to, to let them make more decisions. And the the flip side, I think I've seen this happen before is, like you start trying to just sell, sell, sell. Don't worry, it's all good, it's all good. But that actually pushes them further and further away from trust. And they want to come in and get more and more micromanagey about it, which then probably exacerbates the problem. And you get into this very quick death spiral of like, they can't get hands on enough. But the more they do that, the less you're actually able to make progress towards the thing that is really important you make progress towards. So it's a long term game. And like, Part of it, I, I think, actually comes back to having those personal relationships with those people, too, that are very external. So you can talk to them just like, hey, look, 
I don't get what the hell's going on here rather than I have to speak very politically and corporately and properly and just have the conversation, right? 100%. And I feel like Go on, Dom. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I mean, it's something that personally terrifies me, but the idea of having a a kind of long-term relationship with a publishing relationship is like, uh, as an indie developer now, that's probably the the greatest kind of dream and someone you can just kind of be a little bit more informal with. I've been on quite a few projects in 20 years, like still kind of scarred from kind of publishers pulling, like the publisher breakdown on big projects, um, pulling their funding and, and all the disasters that come with it. So it's something I'm, I'm facing now as a solo developer that like is on my mind a lot. So, so yeah, I judge. Go on. I was just going to say, I think what, exactly that. I think what James said is nice. Like we could internally be a bit more for at the forefront with information, but with a publisher, if you're going to do that, at least have a solution to the problem. Don't say, hey, this is happening. See you in three weeks with an idea. It's like, I think if you're going to do that, definitely at least, um, yeah, obviously be a bit more formal in that context if you're not going to have it in an unrecorded conversation. If it's a big say, hey, we have a big issue, we're going to lose two months of time, but this is what we've done to fix it. That sounds like a good way to build that long-term relationship, right? Even though you could have said the truth two weeks ago. This is just someone who's never been in a gaming studio internally. Like that seems like a way to do it. Like you, you want to prime them, right? With hey, we're solving it. Amazing. Guys, we'll wrap that up there. This has been the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank James, Patrick, and Dom for their insights. And thank you everyone at home for listening. If you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts or just want to chat, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Harry Foku. Foku is spelled P-H-O-K-O-U.